FX Medicine Live will be at Tammy Guest's Natrapreneur Experience from the 16th to the 17th of February 2019. For more information and to book your tickets, please go to tammyguest.com. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Cindy Kennedy, who's a nutritional medicine practitioner and medical herbalist who lives and breathes Hashimoto's on a personal and professional level. Raising two young children who have both been diagnosed, she's made it her mission to thoroughly understand this complex condition. Her compassion and intrigue ensures that an individual therapeutic approach is taken for each and every one of her clients to enable them to make the transition from suffering and debilitating illness to living a healthy and fulfilled life. Cindy is the best-selling author of Help, My Child Has Hashimoto's and has been featured by UK Thyroid, Stop the Thyroid Madness and Change Your POV point of view. Welcome back to FX Medicine. Cindy, how are you? Really good. Thank you so much for having me. It is our pleasure. I remember our last podcast with you where you spoke about your um, personal experiences with Hashimoto's and it really opened my eyes as to not just the confounding things that happened but also just how much you can help your patients. It really sort of opened my eyes as to what you can do. Yeah, it's incredible what we can do with so many conditions and um, particularly ones where sometimes I think that... um, there's not a whole lot that the, can be done medically. Um, I think really with this diet and lifestyle, there's so much we can do to support these people, which is, which is really exciting. Mm. And one of the things I pick up, and I've picked this up quite a few times in the medical literature or uh, you know magazines, is that once a health professional has a personal experience with a disorder, it really changes their perspective on the standard of care Absolutely, I think yeah, I think it becomes it, it becomes a lot more personal then, and and I think it really drives you to, to dig deeper for answers. And indeed, I understand you've got a child with Ehlers Danlos syndrome. Is that correct? Yes, I do. <laughs> I do. And that's it's, what we're um, speaking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, she was actually it's the one who um, was first diagnosed with Hashimoto's, and he's had the most grief with it. And um, originally, they thought because she already had that, they were looking at a um, rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis because she was in so much pain and um, she was falling over a lot, having a lot of problems with the joints. Um, And then, yeah, we went through the diagnostic um, procedure and um, it turned out it was Ellis Danlos. So, I mean, it was a big sigh of relief that it wasn't rheumatoid arthritis, but Mm. um, anyone who has or has dealt with Ellis Danlos knows it's... um, it can be quite the beast itself to deal with as well. So Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, EDS, let's go through exactly what it is because I think many people think it's, oh, it's, you know, you can bend your thumb back and touch your wrist, but it's much more than hypermobility, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. It is considered a, um, a rare disease, um, but I think it's probably massively undiagnosed. Um, there's not... Yeah, there's not a lot of awareness around it, both in um, 
amongst practitioners but also among the general populace as well. Like a lot of people, they say, oh, Elizabeth, I've never heard of that, what is it? Um, sometimes have, I've had to spell it out for other medical professionals as well uh, because they didn't know what it was. Um, really? So it is actually a, it's a family of disorders. They put it on, on a spectrum, really, and um, it now consists of 13 different types of distinct um, disorders that fall under the Ehlers-Danlos banner. Take us through how people present and... and Apart from the normal hypermobility issues, what other areas of the body does it affect? Yeah, well, being a connective tissue disorder, so basically what it is is there's issues with um, the way that collagen is being produced. So it can be, well, it's a genetic disorder, and this is how they distinguish between the various types, is according to um, how the collagen is affected. So, well, 12 of the 13 different types, they actually know the specific genes that are involved and what they have to do with the collagen. So it could be problems with the primary structure of the collagen, the way that it folds and cross-links, um, how it's processed. It can be problems with the complement pathway. It can be problems with intracellular issues with the way that the protein is then manufactured. So being a connective tissue disorder, as we know, like connective tissue is everywhere within the body. It's not just restricted mm. to, one, to one body one body organ or even one body system. Probably the, the biggest issues um, that I, I have seen um, are digestive issues um, and then probably muscle uh, weakness, muscle pain and overall fatigue. But, I mean, it affects everything. There's a lot of cardiovascular issues that can be involved. There are particular types that are specific to the cardiovascular system where there are issues with either the heart or the... Um, or um, like the strength of your capillaries and yeah. veins and that sort of thing as well. Um, see a lot of um, postural orthostatic tachycardia as well, so people standing up too quickly and then they get really light and the blood pressure is dropping. Again, just because you don't have that strength in the, in the vascular tissues to, to keep the blood pressure at an adequate level. Um, and then also because people are dealing with all of this and, and often you know, they're treated as hypochondriacs because everything is, so non-specific, they're just general things. Oh, I've got aches and pains. I'm tired. Um, it's not something generally when you go to your doctor and they say, "Oh, well, this is the problem." And excuse me, if they run tests, nothing's going to come up in your general blood work. So um, problems like depression and anxiety also tend to um, tend to come about as well. So this is interesting to me in that your child was initially it was initially thought that your child had. Um, rheumatoid arthritis. I'm yeah. going to assume then that one of the differentiating factors were that there were no fevers that are common in juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Is that right? Or do you still yeah. get these fevers? Yeah. No, no. So there's, there's no fevers. There's no, um, you don't get the swelling and you don't get the heat in the joints either. And that was one of the, the big distinguishing factors. But I mean, obviously they then also ran blood tests and that sort of thing, looking for the antibodies. Yeah, so then, a negative um, rheumatoid factor and things like that. Notwithstanding, yeah. you can get a, uh, a an arthritis, a rheumatoid arthritis that's negative rheumatoid factor. But how then do you differentiate it? Um, well, I mean, the, the way that with hypermobile EDS, which is the most common form, um, it's the only, well, this is the, the irony of it, is it's the most common one and it's the only one where they haven't found the genetic oh. um, basis for it. <laughs> So it's all done through clinical examination. So uh, first thing that they usually do is take you through the, um, the Bacon score 
and you have to have a minimum of five out of nine on that. So they're testing basically for flexibility here. So whether you can um, bend forwards and put your hands flat on the floor, if you can hyperextend your elbows and your knees, um, put your thumb back to your forefinger, with, oh, sorry, the thumb back to your wrist, which is called the Steinberg sign. Um, and another one that they sometimes before is called the Walker sign, and that's where um, where you, you wrap your, your thumb and your little finger around your wrist, and they overlap. So you have to, you tend to have the longer um, longer digits, so longer fingers, longer toes, um, a longer arm span to height. Whereas it's normally one to one, you tend to have longer arms than than what you are tall. Um, and another really common one too is is the skin. So if you look at the skin on the forearm and you feel it, it's very soft and almost feels velvety. And the skin is um, very elastic. So if you pinch the skin on the the back of the hand, you can actually lift it up a couple of centimetres. So it's much more than turgidity and it's much more than one of those signs because some people can have this, you know, a great trait that you see it in school, oh, you know, look, I can bend my thumb back to my wrist. But when yeah. it's much, you, you know, you've got to add up the score. It's not just one, one yeah, score. Yeah, it's, it's quite a detailed criteria that, that needs to be met um, in order to reach the diagnosis. And then there's generally other ongoing issues, so uh, long-term systemic pain, uh, fatigue that is quite um, similar to chronic fatigue as well. And a lot of people actually feel that the, the fatigue is more debilitating than the pain, even though the pain can be quite excessive at times. And so is the pain because of stresses on other structures, because the cartilaginous tissue just isn't able to hold itself? Is that what's happening? Um, well, I think that there's actually quite a few things that are involved here. So um, they believe that the neurological system is actually involved and um, so it's affecting the nerves themselves. Mm. Um, there's been some studies that say that um, pain perception is altered as well. But then you've got the problems of everything is having to work harder. So yeah. um, it was originally explained to me that even... Um, like even for a child to sit, a child, for example, to sit upright in their desk at school is physically exhausting. So their muscles are having, the muscles are having to work about 30% harder than other people because all the joints are so, are so elastic and so lax that rather than your tendons and your, and your ligaments holding everything together, it's actually your muscles that are having to hold your whole body together. So by the end of the day, even though you might not have gone and done any exercise, your body's actually been working really, really hard just to hold itself together and to hold itself upright. Right, so, so there... I think Sorry. things like that, um, yeah, it, it contributes to the pain. And also, like with elasticity, there's frequent um, subluxations and dislocations, which obviously cause pain as well. I'm in two minds here about would things like splinting or wrapping or strapping aid the body or make it more lazy? Like, do you have to really concentrate on muscle strength then? Yeah, muscle strength is, is absolutely crucial um, and I think really at, at the forefront of any kind of treatment, particularly core strength. Um, I think with strapping, I mean, because this, this is a chronic issue, it's, it's not acute like yeah. a strain where it's, you know, you're just going to strap it for a couple of days. Strapping can be required um, if there is particular weakness, mostly if you're concerned that it's going to dislocate or if you're playing sport and you know you've got a weak ankle or a weak knee yep. that gives you grief, then, then yes, you're going to have to strap. 
but really building up building up muscle and working with a really good exercise physiologist is I think absolutely crucial in cases like this. And of course when you're talking about exercise and sports, you know, you're talking about growing up and enjoying oneself. Um, but yeah. even things like scarring can take a, a total different track. This is something that surprised me when I looked at it. Never thought about it, never twigged. But of course, yeah. it's a cross-linking issue, isn't it? So, what happens Absolutely. with scarring, with the you know the normal wounds of grow, growing up? Well, it can be all sorts of things. So you can have um, issues with increased scarring, um, and this is where a lot of problems arise with surgery as well. When you go into orthopedic surgery, mm. because people with EDS tend to dislocate and are at a higher risk for serious dislocations. Um, but when they do go into surgery, often it's not as successful as it otherwise may be, and part of this is because of the scarring that occurs internally as well, which can then cause problems down the track. And, like, I can see this causing all sorts of issues, but, you know, you mentioned digestive issues, and, of course, it's the viscera that holds the digestive system in place. So what happens with the the correct positioning, the anatomical positioning of the gut? Yeah, well, this is um, one of the issues, and and it... It's so widespread as well in the way that it manifests. So, um, I mean, really there's problems with the digestive system from one end literally to the other. I mean, in the mouth we see a lot of periodontal problems, even um, just bleeding gums for no no other reason. In in the absence of any kind of infection or ulceration, you can still have bleeding gums. Uh, Moving further down, esophageal problems are really, really common. We see lots and lots of reflux, lots of gourd, because the symptoms don't have that strength and integrity that they really need. Mm. Um, yet often um, digestive issues, so you're thinking as well once we get to the stomach that um, because the lining is not, perhaps is, um, doesn't have that integrity that it really needs, so we can see lower stomach acid, so problems with breaking food down, and then moving into the um, small intestine, we see SIBO an awful, awful lot, and again I think this may be due to problems with the sphincters not keeping things separate as they should. Um, motility problems are absolutely massive with the bowel. And then um, at the other end, we see anal fissures, we see prolapses. Oh, so it's really yeah, right from one end right through to the other. And then also when we're looking at the, the sphincters as well, this also affects other things like sleep, for example. So there's a much higher prevalence of um, obstructive sleep apnea. Yep, yep. And I believe that that's because the pharynx is actually collapsing down and causing problems because it doesn't have that strength there. Of course. So even the cartilaginous C-rings around your trachea might have issues, wouldn't they? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So absolutely everything. <laughs> okay. So what about, uh, you know, lying prone or supine? Issues with, let's say, the pleura. Um, let's say, you know, you mentioned cardiac issues before. What about the pericardium? Yep, yep. Well, I mean, I haven't read anything personally, but absolutely, I mean, there's the potential there. So, I mean, mitral valve issues are very common, um, not just in the cardiac forms of the of the EDS, but also even just with the hypermobile type. So, absolutely, any type of connective tissue, which is really any part of your body. I mean, some types, there are problems with the eye, some types, you know, it's problems with um, periodontal issues. So it's just anything, anything can be affected. And I think this is what makes it really difficult um, in diagnosis and also in understanding because it's not like, okay, we tick these three boxes, this is what you've got. Or we just run the test and if it comes back positive, then this is what you have. 
Um, there are just so many possibilities of the way that this can manifest that it makes it very difficult to diagnose, but then also very difficult to treat as well. Mm. And you very rarely see two people with the same presentation, even though they may have the same diagnosis. It's such an individual thing, right? So um, my daughter has it, and obviously because it's genetic, it's come from somewhere else. So I have it too, and and the way that um, it manifests in the two of us, again, is quite different, even though we have that same very close genetic makeup, the the actual individual manifestations are so different. I want to get on to medical therapy that you mentioned um, a little bit later, but just before we do that, you mentioned that the hypermobility type is the one that hasn't been linked yet to a genetic issue. But what about the other types? What's going on here? Okay, so there's, as I said, there's um, there's now defined 13 different types. So originally they had six, and then last year there was an international symposium and they reassessed it all and they've broken it down now into 13 um, 13 different types. And they are basically, well, the way that they're differentiated specifically is through their genetic basis. But then they also obviously have a different phenotype because of, because of the different genes that are involved. So, um, there's, for example, there's a vascular type. And in people with vascular idiots, you see a lot of bleeding issues. So um, they start to bleed. They can't stop. They bruise very easily. Um there's brittle cornea syndrome, for example, which falls under the banner. So eye issues there. Um, there's a periodontal EDS. So again, we're seeing a lot of mouth problems. So they're quite varied, but um, quite specific again in um, in their particular type. But when you look at it as a, as a family of disorders, it's, it's very far-reaching. And do people tend to have like a predominant type or is... It's very common for people to have a, you know, urinary tract issue and, of course, the hypermobility issue. Is the hypermobility issue always there or can you have no hypermobility but cardiovascular issues? Well, you gen- generally tend to see the hypermobility, but the severity of it can vary. So some people can be extremely flexible, you know, like a contortionist, mm. um, whereas other people can't touch their toes. But the types are specific to themselves and they do run true genetically like within families. So if your parent has, um, for example, periodontal EDS and you get EDS, you will also have the periodontal EDS. You won't have vascular EDS. Gotcha. So they do run true in families like that. So let's move on to the medical therapy because I could just imagine total polypharmacy here. If somebody's got, you know, one <laughs> predominant type, you know, but you're, you know, very often going to have a hypermobility issue, to, yeah. as you say, to some degree, there's going to be at least two different fronts that you're going to be treating. Yeah. So, I mean, physical therapy forms the cornerstone, um, really, because we need to build up that strength in the muscles um, and particularly in, in, in the core strength as well. It's really, really important. Um, and then we see so many people because of the pain, um, use of, you know, everything from non-steroidal um, anti-inflammatories to opioids to, um, you know, they're even using antidepressant medication to help people with deal with their pain as well. So you just see an absolute plethora of, of medications. But it can, again, it can depend specifically on the individual. So you might have someone who's depressed because they're in pain and they can't, you know, they've had to maybe give up work or they can't interact with their kids and so that becomes a big issue for them as well. Um, yeah, 
a lot of a lot of pain drugs, but then it's the problem with those as well is because most pain drugs are only effective for acute situations, and when they're used long term in, in a chronic condition such as EDS, they tend to lose their effectiveness over time, and so doses can get higher and yeah. higher while they become less and less effective. So it, it can be a yeah, it can be a terrible issue, like for the people particularly, because they're they're in a situation that they can't fix it. Um, and medicines aren't working anymore, and I think that's where we're in a really privileged position to step in and help them. You mentioned physical therapy as the cornerstone, but of course fatigue is also a predominant symptom because their body is yeah. working 30% harder. So what's yeah. their um, ability to perform physical act- um, activity? Do they have to be really mindful of a threshold? Very much so, and it, it varies from day to day. So you've really got to sort of play to your strength but recognise your limitations as well and um, work with work with a very experienced uh, physical therapist as well, I think, is essential. So, um, like, I, speaking from personal experience, you know, over the years I've had everything from physical trainers to physiotherapists, exercise physiologists and, and the rest of it. And um, I, I have found personally that, um, exercise physiologists are by far the best because they're trained for the long, more trained for the long-term chronic conditions, um, and they seem much more able to really develop a specific um, program that suits your particular needs. And again, because it manifests so differently in every person, um, what works for one person is not going to work for another. But you need to get that balance between exercising to build the muscles up uh, and not overdoing it because, you know, if, if you overdo it and you have a flare-up, you could be out of action for a week or two weeks before you can do anything. So it's really important to manage that fatigue um, alongside with the exercise. What about the knowledge of physiotherapists and, as you said, exercise physiologists? Were they, because this is their arena, were they much yeah. more aware of EDS and the issues facing them? Yeah, yeah. Like, like I said, um, we've been fortunate here. I mean, being in a small town, we don't have a whole lot of people to choose from, but the exercise physiologist we've got here is absolutely wonderful. And um, he uses a variety of things from um, Pilates once you're stronger to hydrotherapy, um, exercises to do at home. So he, yeah. They've got a really, really good knowledge and, and understand that you've got to be very careful because you have to be aware as well of um, dislocations. This is a really big issue mm. as well mm. um, because people with EDS dislocate ridiculously easily and much more severely than than normal as well. So, um, yeah, there's so many things that, that they need to be mindful and that's why I think it's really important to go into a qualified professional to help you with it rather than just, you know, trying to figure it out on your own or doing some YouTube videos. And I'd also ask about their experience and, and knowledge absolutely, of Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Can I ask about hydrotherapy? Because this is something that we very often overlook and yet you've got, you know, resistance throughout a full range of motion. Do yeah. you find that that's more beneficial than other exercises or that it might present certain issues because there's no respite? Uh, well, again, I think it, it depends on the individual. I probably wouldn't be recommending it for someone with, like, the vascular EDS, for example. Um, but with the hypermobile, I think it, it, it's really good because you also have the, the buoyancy of the water is supporting the body as well. Right, so right. while you do have that resistance in the movement, you have the support 
it's actually taking the weight of the body and also the heat as well um, really helps with the, with the joint mobility. I was also thinking about the symptomatic relief and possible uh, upsetting of other symptoms lower down with digestive features. So, for instance, if somebody had gourd and they had to mm. take a PPI or an antacid, then that may well compound issues further down like SIBO. How yeah. do you how do you wend your way through that one? Oh, well, you start at the beginning, I guess. <laughs> um, I always like to approach it from the basis of what is most concerning to the client. Like, what are they? What what's causing them the most grief? What's affecting their quality of life the most? And start there. Um, I think because this is something that they've been dealing with for a long time. It, it's not like another illness where they've become sick. They've generally had issues for their whole life. So they might have struggled with headaches for their whole life. They might have been constipated for their whole life. Um, they might have had trouble with their jaw dislocating for their whole life. So um, I think really identifying what the main problem is for that particular person and starting there because it's not going to be a quick fix uh, and it's going to be a very long-term journey to um, improvement. So I think it's really vital to address the symptoms that are impacting their quality of life the most and start there and then from there sort of progress the way out of things improve. Obviously, we're talking about an N equals 2 here, but where can natural therapies help? What evidence is there for natural therapies to be of benefit as well? Uh, well, they're actually um, doing some fundraising at the moment um, for, for a big research project through the um, Queen Mary University of London and they're looking at dietary effects on EDS. So they're looking at what nutritional um, support can we give um, to improve the situation for these people. Um, there has been other studies done um, on various disorders within the EDS family. Um, but I think really what a lot of that focuses on is they're looking at which symptoms of EDS overlap with symptoms of nutritional deficiency. So, for example, um, hypermobility and rickets are often considered, you know, quite similar there. So we're looking at vitamin D and calcium and magnesium. Um, also, the, the skin issues. So when we see the easy bruising and, and they bleed a lot more, so vitamin C and vitamin K. So there's a bit of research there. Um, but when we look at it more... If we look at it rather than as a, well, this is the diagnosis, what do we need to do to treat it? If we look more at, well, who's a person in front of me? What's going on in them? How can we support what they're going through? Yeah. Then I think it just opens up. It, it just opens up so many opportunities there where we can really step in. So if we're looking, for example, at joint support, then we've got things like um, glucosamine and then we can also use things, even something simple like a bone broth. Um, to really help with that collagen structure. Vitamin C and zinc, um, again, really good for protein synthesis. Um, and then if we're looking at energy, we can see things like CoQ10 and carnitine or how can we support you know, the ETP pathways um, with mitochondrial support. So it, it's, yeah, there's so many different ways that, that we can look at it. Um, even from a herbal perspective, we can look at adrenal support because we know these people's bodies have just been right. working so hard for so long. Um, even something like licorice where, um, can be particularly beneficial, particularly in people who have the 
issues with POTS because it's going to bring their blood pressure up as well as all the adrenal support that's going on in there. Um, one of my favourites as well for con- connective tissue is um, Gotricola. I just think it's just such a beautiful herb. I mean, you can even give it to them as a tea if they're not not fancy on tinctures. Yeah. Um, or if they can get it fresh, you can put it in a salad or throw it in a stir fry. So it's, it's really easy to just incorporate these things into their daily lives. But there's, there's so many opportunities for things that we can do because it is such a huge big spectrum of, um, of the way that it affects the body. If you've got a genetic, let's say, inhibition in, uh, yeah. in synthesis of, of a pathway... Um, versus a complete blockage, is there a determinant there for either supplementation or withholding supplementation? I guess where I'm going here, if there's an inhibition, but there's a slight use of that pathway, can you barge your way through with offering more of a nutrient versus if there's a blockage, if you give that nutrient, it backs up and causes problems somewhere else. Is that something you think about? Yeah, I I think so. Um... I think what I, I think the way that I look at it as well, though, is um, most of these people are having trouble absorbing their food because they've got the digestive issues. Um, right. They're going to very frequently have issues with um, intestinal permeability as well because you don't have that integrity of the collagen in the intestines as well. Um, so we do see a lot of problems with um, with some. Um, tight junctions and, and that sort of thing as well. So yeah. I, I think it would be rare for somebody to be having too many of a particular nutrient unless, of course, they were supplementing at a higher level. Yeah. Um, but there is, there, is one, um, there is one exception to that, and that is with the spondylodysplastic EDS. And in that particular form of EDS, they do have um, a genetic issue with one of the zinc transporter genes. So you do have to be careful there. Um, initially, the research was saying that it was due to too much zinc. Now they're saying that perhaps it's due to zinc deficiency. Mm. So that is, just, that is just one case where you do need to be careful and keep a really close eye on things. But generally, I found that um, people are suffering much more from a lack of nutrients than, than too much. And also when you're looking at it, I mean, the metabolic needs are just so much greater um, because they're having to, you know, they're, they're having to produce more protein and more collagen. They're having to um, support the mitochondrial function so much more as well to really create that extra energy to support the extra energy requirements that they have, um, even just for the muscles to work. So... You've really, you've really enlightened me there, you know. Um, tell us about your personal experience with both your and your daughter's EDS. What were the main issues that you chose natural support? What were you trying to thwart or nourish? Uh, so for me, the big one was pain relief. Um, I suffered a massive shoulder dislocation in my mid-20s when I was in the Navy, and that left me unable to work for many, many years. Um, and I was on... Every every painkiller under the sun. I was on high dose tramel for over ten years, um, which caused all sorts of other digestive issues on top of all the digestive issues that you already have with EDS. So, um, for me, yeah, getting on top of the pain is a really really big one, and the herbal medicine in particular has been life changing in that regard. 
um, as well as things like yeah, um, magnesium, obviously. Um, and fatigue has been another really big, another really really big issue. So being able to really support that mitochondrial function with you know your B vitamins and your CoQ10, um, and then your adrenal uh, restoratives and your adaptogens and that kind of thing has, um, well, it's given me my life back basically. <laughs> Um, I'm now, yeah, well, I'm now working, um, I'm raising my kids, whereas, you know, 10 years ago, I was laying on the couch while life was happening around me. So, um, yeah, natural medicine has been absolutely life-changing for me um, and my experience with EDS. With um, my daughter, um, again, it's predominantly been for pain relief and for um, energy, Um Early on, um, her paediatrician wanted to put her on Nurofen daily. <laughs> and um, she said, well, this is what I would prescribe, but I know you won't give it to her. And I said, no, you're right. I won't give her Nurofen every single day for the rest of her life. Um, but obviously, I also have access to natural medicines that work just as well and, and don't have the side effects. So we've been really, really fortunate there. And she's at the point now where um, she doesn't take anything for pain unless she needs it. So she might go three or four weeks without taking something, whereas initially she was, well, when she was first diagnosed, um, she was taking Panadol three or four times a day, every single day. So that's, that's just been a, a massive difference for her. And she's now able to go and play sport. Um, she loves the soccer. So she does miss some games. I think the fatigue is too bad or if she's sore, because she often wakes up um, really achy in the mornings. But even things like heat packs and, and baths and Epsom salts, absolutely wonderful. So, um, yeah, it, it's incredible what natural medicine can do. And I think, it, sadly, it's so often overlooked. And from a medical standpoint, there's really not a whole lot they have to offer because it's not something that can be fixed. It's not like an infection where we can kill off the, the bad bacteria. This is, this is a lifelong mm condition that you need to manage mm. rather than to fix. And um, so, yeah, from a medical standpoint, it, it's basically, well, build up your, your muscle strength. And um, after that, it's the symptomatic relief. So painkillers, if you're in pain, um, it's antidepressants if you're depressed because you're in pain and you're tired and you can't do anything. And, and that's sort of um, in the extent of of really what um, what we, personally what we've been offered, um, but from the medical uh, from a natural medicine point of view, like we can support adrenals, we can support energy production pathways, we can you know provide anti-inflammatory so we can reduce that systemic inflammation. There's so many different ways that we can really get in there and, and improve the quality of life for people with EDS, which is really, really exciting. A couple of points I just thought I'd make, and that is, you know, you mentioned the long-term use of analgesics because of the, obviously, the chronic issue with pain. Um, and of course, we now know that paracetamol or acetaminophen, if you're in the US, we thought, of course, that it was the safest drug. And, and you know, I remember from my nursing days, if you didn't know which, which one was the safest drug, you put down paracetamol. And, yeah. and of course, we now know that there can be issues with a, a byproduct of dysbiosis called P. Cresol. And, and there's a really good paper. Um, I think it's by Catherine Lozapone where she discusses the issues of toxicants. Um, mm. and, and so I just think 
it's really interesting how you're very mindful of not just saying, oh, well, there's some pain relief. Can I offer some um, alternative pain relief? But how can I support the body so that it doesn't get the bad side effects of that, be it pharmaceutical um, pain yeah. relief in this instance? And, and sort of on that note as well, I mean, if you've got someone who has been on pain relief for a long time or um, antidepressants or that sort of thing, obviously then we've got to look at liver support and... Mm detox pathways and, and that sort of thing, and yeah. then the neurotransmitter support as well. So You mentioned you and your daughter. That obviously means you went through two pregnancies at least. Um, yeah. Pregnancy, how the hell did you cope? Well, I'm quite fortunate, really. Um, I didn't have didn't really have any issues with regards to the EDS. My first pregnancy was, was textbook. It was wonderful. Everything went really well. I'm guessing perhaps it could be beneficial in childbirth because you're more yeah. stretchy and more elastic. So um, I, had a, I had a natural birth with my first one. I had a water birth with her, which was wonderful. Um, with my second one, with Madeline, the one who has all the issues, um, we, had a lot of, you know, we had a lot of complications and issues, and it, it turned out it was because she was small. The cords were wrapped around her a couple of times, so right. um, it all sort of went to custard with her. <laughs> yeah. But um, not due to the not due to the EDS. I was very lucky. I mean, you do see prolapses and things like that um, in women, so just something to be mindful of. I was thinking all sorts of things, like from prolapses, the fatigue. You know, th there's that one benefit of the symphysis pubis being more elastic, but then you've got yeah. the issue of dislocations, of um, trying to keeping uh, maintain pushing um, yeah. through your pregnancy, that all of these other compounding issues. And I just yeah. went, oh, my God, I never even considered this. It yeah. must be massive for those people that suffer, particularly yeah. the hypermobility issues. I mean, I was like, I was really fit and really strong when I was younger. <laughs> when <laughs> Where I we all? <laughs> so I think that probably helped quite a lot. Um, but yeah, you do see all these sorts of issues, and, and particularly the fatigue. I mean, the fatigue can be absolutely debilitating. So I think that's something that... And then again, it comes back to nutrition. Like, this is why we really need to support with a really nutrient-dense diet, make sure there's plenty of protein in there because they're going to burn through more protein than normal. Yeah. Um, so yeah, diet is just so important. And I know for myself, like if, if I get a bit lazy and I don't eat well, I just can't function. I get so exhausted. So, um, yeah, diet, it, it always comes back to diet, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. For those yeah. judicial supplements that you might've taken, did you find that you had to take more to get a, a clinical effect? No, I don't think so. But then again, that could also be because I've got quite a nutrient-dense diet to start with. Yeah. If it was someone perhaps who wasn't eating really well, who was just eating the standard diet, then that would probably be likely, I would think, because you do have that higher requirement for a lot of for a lot of your nutrients. So yeah. things like your magnesium and your zinc and your B vitamins and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, so, but diet is always the cornerstone, of course. Um, yeah. and, and what about further support for patients and practitioners out there? Um, for EDS? Yep, so the best place to go is the um, Ella's Danlos Society website. So that's um, ellas-danlos.com. Um, they've got some fantastic resources on there, um, both for practitioners and for patients. Um, but for practitioners in their clinic when people come in, I think the best thing you can do is, is to offer empathy because they're very often being through 
a very arduous experience with the system. It's very difficult to get diagnosed, so it may have taken years and years and years of them saying, I'm not right, and and being brushed off as, you know, well, nothing's coming up in the test, so there's nothing wrong with me. Um, and just offering as much support as you can and really look at, at each person as an individual um, yeah. because this is such an individual uh, disease. So it, it's going to manifest so differently in each person. So don't go, okay, well, this is what they have. This is how we treat them. Really look at the person in front of you, talk to them, find out what their big concerns are and, and start with that. I think it's probably the best way to go. Cindy, you've obviously got a wealth of expertise, not just with EDS, but also with the Hashimoto's. And, you know, that, that whole... To me, there's a, a, a multi-pronged lesson, if you like, that you've learned, and that is not just from a practitioner point of view, but a mother, and also on a social perspective, you know, being a family. Um, you've given us some real core things to think about. So thank oh, you, thank you so and much. <laughs> yeah, and thank you, Cindy, for joining us on FX Medicine today and, and taking us through the issues um, facing Ellis Danlos syndrome. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. The Australasian Integrative Medicine Association New Zealand Conference will be held on the sixth and seventh of April, 2019. This year's theme is From Genome to Microbiome, Integrative Medicine for Everyday Problems. Join a fantastic lineup of passionate national and international experts sharing the latest updates and insights on current critical issues in practice. For more information and to register for this event, please go to ama.net.au and click on the Education tab.